Please open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9. If you're not sure where Zechariah is, two books to the left of Matthew. And we'll be finishing the ninth chapter of Zechariah today. And why don't we begin our time by reading the text this morning. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 11 through 17. Zechariah 9, 11 through 17. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today, I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made a frame, its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrows will go forth like lightning. And the Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. They shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them, as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his, hand, on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. Let's pray. Lord, as we study your word, these ancient words, prophetic words spoken over 2,000 years before our day, Lord. Give us eyes of faith that see how even now your spirit speaks through your word to us. This was your word for them, and this is your word for us. And Lord, we just pray that you would give us ears that hear and eyes that see. Remove the veil so that we could respond in faith and obedience and our faith could be encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen. For those of you who've been with us this time of our study through Zechariah, you'll remember that we have just entered the third and final section of Zechariah. Zechariah is written to a post-exilic community. A little less than 50,000 Jews returned from the captivity to Babylon. What was a once a multi-million nation people is now reduced to 49 some odd thousand refugees returning home. Once a nation with prestige and power and wealth. Remember the Queen of Sheba came and marveled at Solomon's wisdom and at the temple. Now doesn't even have a king. They have a governor. And God sends to this beleaguered, discouraged people, prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to encourage them, to spur them on to obedience and to pour out God's lavish promises. And in this final section of the book, starting in chapter 9, and the final section, as you remember, is divided into two burdens of the word of the Lord. That's how chapter 9, 1 begins. And then the second, the burden of the word of the Lord in chapter 12 begins. The final chapters, 9 through 13, divided as these burdens. Really now we're looking at the eschaton, looking at the two comings of the Messiah clearly. 
And in chapter 9 is really a word of judgment to the nations. We saw at the beginning of 9, in the first eight verses, how God was pronouncing judgment on the Phoenicians and on Tyre and Sidon and on the Philistines. And, and God's judgment would be executed in short order by the Greek Alexander the Great as he came down the Mediterranean coast laying siege to Tyre, the, the island fortress which Nebuchadnezzar and Shalmaneser could not take, he took in seven months. And yet, as God promised in, in 9.8, he encamped around Jerusalem, Alexander the Great, mysteriously, well, not so mysteriously to us who have God's word, just passed by Israel and Jerusalem and let them be. He went down to Egypt, did more war there, came back north, passed them by again, just as God promised. And so the first oracle deals with the judgment on the nations and the security of Jerusalem. And then last week, we focused just on two verses that that would set up, that that judgment would prepare the way for the coming of, of Israel's king. Coming not in might, not in pomp, not in glory, but on a donkey, humbly, righteous, bringing salvation. And we looked and saw how that, that speaks to the first coming of Christ and humility, coming as a savior, not as a judge, coming inviting people to join his kingdom, not conquering, bringing salvation. But then verse 10 looked further to the second coming of Christ and, and the peaceful conditions of the kingdom which would be established at his return. And now in the final section of the chapter, we're going to look at a second great threat facing Israel. The first was Alexander's move down towards the south, and God promised them, you, you, will, you will endure this first great threat to your nation doing nothing in peace. I will protect you. And now in these this last section, verses 11 through 17, God is going to again promise the protection and the perseverance of Israel, this time not through peace, but through warfare. You can't mistake that in this section, that the, the language of war is rife through it. Look, verse 11, prisoners. Verse 12, stronghold. In verse 13, it speaks of a bow and the arrow and the warrior's sword. Verse 14, the trumpet for war. Verse 15, stones that are slinging, people roaring in battle as if drunk, their clothes drenched with blood. This is a tumultuous, bloody passage. Israel, God promised, would survive that first threat in peace. Now we're going to speak to the Lord of hosts defending his people. You remember that title, most prominent title for God in the book of Zechariah, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the military Lord. Now we're going to begin to see some of that played out. The Lord of armies will use Israel as his bow. He will defend them from the threats that come towards them. He will preserve them so that there is a city for the Messiah to ride into on a donkey in a few hundred years. And he'll preserve them so that there is a city for the Messiah to return to. As chapter 14 predicts, his foot will set down on the Mount of Olives. Well, there needs to be a city on the Mount of Olives. God needs to preserve, in some sense, his people. And this passage will speak to how that is done. And we're going to Look at how the Lord of hosts will defend his people in three sections in this passage. We'll look at the first. Israel's prisoners will be restored. Israel's prisoners will be restored. And God now turns his attention back to the people after speaking this wonderful announcement of, of the Messiah King who would come. 
Look, rejoice, jump for joy. Now he turns back to the people of his day. In fact, this first section contains really the only application, the only command for the people of Zechariah's day, and it's return, return. Verse 11, as for you, now looking at the the generation of Zechariah's day, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And then here comes the exhortation, the command, return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today, I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow. And I have made a frame its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. So we see that Israel's prisoners will be restored. They'll be restored in that they will return, and they'll be restored in that they'll be strengthened to be used as a, a weapon in God's hand. I mean, look at this in three points. First, we're given the reason why. Why is God doing this? Why is God making these promises? Why is God predicting and ensuring and, and, and encouraging them to come home. Because remember, there's still thousands upon thousands of Jews still in Babylon, still who have yet to return. And here's God saying, come home, come home, come home. Why? He gives the reason. It's not because of their righteousness. It's not because of any good they did. But because of the blood of my covenant with you. See, God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful to his covenants. God is faithful to his word. What's the reason why God is pouring out these blessings on this ragtag bunch of Israelites? First and fundamentally, because God keeps his word. Because God's covenants bind. And people read this, and it might be attractive to think of the blood of the covenant. You can move forward to the Gospels where Jesus says, holding up the cup, this is the blood of my covenant. That's not what he's talking about here. Remember, that hasn't happened. But there is language that sounds like this, but it's back in Exodus. Turn turn to Exodus 24. What blood of what covenant is Zechariah talking about? In Exodus 24, I think we have the antecedent that this is speaking of. In Exodus 24, we read about Moses writing down the covenant that God made in a book. This is actually one of the first references to Scripture being written. Let's pick it up in verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. So we've got in this passage one of the first Records of Scripture being written and now Scripture being read publicly. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. That's that's the covenant Zechariah is talking about. When, When the people came to Mount Sinai, 
and they entered into a covenant relationship with God, what we call the Mosaic Covenant or the Law Covenant. It was sealed with blood. And God made promises and the people made promises and and the people broke their promises, as we know. That's why they were taken off the land. Because God kept His word in punishing them. He told them what He'd do. But I want you to go now to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Because even though this, this covenant of law, a covenant that we know in the New Testament, ultimately that was obsolete, ultimately that was not going to get them all the way there, that there needed to be a new covenant, it was still a good covenant. It was still a good word. And Moses is well aware of the fact that this law covenant will fail. The people will not keep it. Judgment will come upon them. But here's God's faithfulness in all of this. Because even within the law is this concept that Israel's going to fail and God will be faithful. Look, look at this. Deuteronomy 30. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. So Moses is well aware how this covenant of law is going to end. It's going to end in Israel scattered to the nations. He's under no misunderstanding that this is going to just work perfectly. He knows the people are faithless. He knows the people are weak. He knows the people will not keep the covenant. But here God adds this in. When you bring this to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you with all your heart, with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart, the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep his commandments that I commanded you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of the ground. The Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law. When you turn to the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul. God's saying, I remember that word, that promise. You remembered that I scattered you. You remembered that I kept my threats. And you were faithless. I drove you out of the land. But God remembers that beyond that threat of, of judgment, there was a promise hanging over the top that when they were scattered, he would, he would cause these things to come to their mind, that he would circumcise their hearts, that he would regather them, that he would not leave them scattered, that, that scattering was not the final word for Israel. And so here, this, this passage back in Zechariah announces because of the blood of the covenant, God's not done with them. Because of the blood of the covenant, God is going to 
restore them. In fact, where we're going in chapter 10 next week is all about this regathering, this promised regathering from, from Deuteronomy. And you can read ahead this week and see just how explicit and how literal and how accurate the promises of the covenant are to be fulfilled. Zechariah is not watering them down. If anything, he's ramping them up. So because of God's faithfulness, that's why the prisoners will be restored. And then we see that they go from hopelessness to a double portion. So he describes them, these prisoners, free from the waterless pit, which is a picture either of the dried up well in which Joseph was thrown, if you remember, or uh, Jeremiah was thrown into a similar dried up well. And, And it's not that thousands and thousands of Israelites were literally in the bottom of dried up wells, but, but that's how they felt. It's, it's, it's a sparing place to be. It, it's a place where you feel there's no escape. You feel overwhelmed. These prisoners are, are captive. They're in a foreign land. Perhaps they've heard about the, the meager restoration attempts in Jerusalem. They've heard about how few people have returned. And what's the use, they may think. And God tells them, return, I'm going to set you free return, and then he calls them again prisoners of hope, which is an odd phrase. Prisoners are not usually people of hope. But you see, when God makes promises and lays them out, you can be a prisoner of hope. And God has reminded them, you, you may be prisoners, you may be in a foreign land, but you have my word, you have my promises, you have my pledge, my seal. That I'm going to do good for you. Return, return prisoners of hope. There is yet something to hope in. I'm not done. The story's not over. That's what God is saying. See, they're going to go from a waterless pit to being restored double. And and that's the picture of the right of the firstborn son. In Deuteronomy 21, the, the law makes it clear that even if you have a favorite child born by a favorite wife, it doesn't matter. The firstborn gets the double portion. And Israel... When Moses was sent to Pharaoh, listen to this in in Exodus 4.22, say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. So So when God tells them, I will give you a double portion, what he's saying is, I'm going to again treat you as my firstborn. I'm going to again treat you as my beloved child. Yes, I've disciplined you. Yes, I've sent you to the nations. Yes, according to Isaiah and Jeremiah, I've disciplined you double. But those, those days are over, return, and we're going to enter into a restored relationship. You, you'll be my firstborn son. I will give you a double portion. That, that's what's being communicated here with that language. It's lavish promises. It explains why you could refer to them as prisoners of hope. Because God is done disciplining his people. This is the theme of the book. You remember way back in chapter 1 when, when the Lord Jesus, pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of the Lord, cries out, How long, O Lord, will you be angry with and discipline your people and show no compassion to them? And, and God responds, setting up sort of the theme of the book that he is exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion and angry with the nations. And that's what we're seeing here. God's zeal, his compassion, his excitement, his love for his people, and the judgment of the nations, which is then where this moves into. Not only will they return, not only will they be restored, not only will they enter again into this this sonship relationship with the Lord, being treated as the firstborn, but they will be strengthened and used as weapons in the hands of the Lord of hosts. Verse 13, For I have bent Judah as my bow, 
and I have made a frame its arrow. Now just pause. There's all sorts of wonderful overtones here. First, bows and arrows work together in tandem, right? One without the other is kind of useless. And he's just named a frame, one of the ten northern tribes, the tribes that pretty much disappeared, and Judah. And so not only does this mean a frame, and therefore the rest of the ten northern tribes will be restored, but here's a picture of all the tribes of Israel working together in harmony, in unison, synchronizing together as God's tool in his hand. I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made a frame its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Now, this sort of sets up the theme for the second chunk of this passage, but before we get to the description of, of victory in battle, an interesting point gets raised. I don't know if you're aware of this, but Greece, the country of Greece, or the Greeks, are only mentioned in two places in the entire Old Testament. Two places. In this chapter of Zechariah and in Daniel's prophecy. And if you were here two weeks ago, you heard me say that the first oracle of judgment on the nations was was that Alexander the Great, the Greek, would come down south, but he would leave Jerusalem alone. They, They would be at peace. There would not be any military conflict with Greece. So how then... Are we to understand this now language of, no, I'm going I'm to strengthen you. I'm going to use you as a tool in my hand, as my sword, as my bow, as my arrow, to stir you up to fight the sons of Greece. Brings up a little problem. I thought, I thought they were going to dwell in peace as, as Greece went by. Well, they would. But now, turn with me to the only other place that talks about the Greeks in the Old Testament. That's Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. And we've got to go here because anyone living in Zechariah's day, when Greece is named, and this is a rare naming, they'd immediately go to Daniel 8. That's the only other place it's mentioned in the entire Old Testament. And, and again, here we see the remarkable power of our God. God. God names them. He doesn't just give vague prophecies. Long before Greek is, Greece is any sort of player on the scene, Daniel in his vision has named them as one of the coming world powers. Now we're going to read most of chapter 8 because I want you to get the details here of, of what Daniel says, what God says through Daniel, the specificity of it, so we can understand how Zechariah's prophecy is to be understood and fulfilled. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel. After that which appeared to me at first, and I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the capital which is in the province of Alam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at Uliai Canal, and I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns. And both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. And I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. And as I considered, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. He came to the ram, the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was engaged, enraged against him, and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, and he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. 
Then the goat became exceedingly, exceedingly great. And when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of the heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offerings was taken away from it, and the place of the sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offerings because of transgression. And I will throw truth to the and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. And then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary, and the host we trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. Now that's pretty confusing. Thankfully, this passage goes on and God interprets it. But I want you to get the details. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. Quite understandable. Behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, and he touched me and made me stand. And he said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. And as for the horn that was broken, in the place of which four arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king, a bold face, one who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall be and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken. But by no human hand. The vision, the evening and mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days, then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So get this. The vision says that the next world power to overthrow the Medes and the Persians is going to be the Greek king, speedy, powerful, a singular individual. This is Alexander the Great. History tells us how quickly his troops moved, how unstoppable they were, what a powerful leader he was. And he comes and he makes war and he overthrows Persia and the Medes. That's what we saw at the beginning of Zechariah chapter 9. But then God goes on to predict that this great powerful king will be broken and cut off. And in his place, four sub-rulers will arise. This is exactly what happens in history. Alexander the Great um, gets drunk in Babylon, gets pneumonia and dies. 
And four of his generals split up his kingdom. And none of them had the power, the gravitas, the skill, the wisdom that he had. And so the, the sum of the parts is lesser than the kingdom under his rule. In fact, and I'll read a little bit from history. You can go back to Zechariah now, chapter 9. God, God's word is accurate. When this great king, Alexander, comes by initially, there'll be peace. God will protect them. But over a hundred years later, in the turmoil of his divided kingdom, Israel would come under threat. Chapter 9 spoke of Alexander the Great's victories over Persia and through Jerusalem would be... And Though Jerusalem would be protected against Alexander, verse 13 says, I will stir up your sons of Zion against the sons of Greece. This shows Jews fighting Greeks. You see, after Alexander's sudden death in 323 BC, his empire fragmented into four pieces. One of his generals, Seleucus, gained control over the eastern territories that include the Middle East. And Antiochus Epiphanes was one of his descendants and thus ruled over the Jews. And Antiochus, concerned about the rising threat to his kingdom from Rome, which was just then beginning to attain dominance in the ancient world, Antiochus labored to unite his realm under and around his pagan Greek culture, which the Jews resisted. And Antiochus responded to this brutally. He stopped the temple services and sacrifices. He destroyed the scrolls of the scriptures. He forbade circumcision. And get this, Antiochus Epiphanes went into the Holy of Holies in the temple, set up an altar to Zeus, and sacrificed a pig on it. The Jews were in a completely vulnerable position militarily, having been placed under occupation with no regular army, and only the Lord to turn to. But God raised up a leader, Judas Maccabeus, who led the Jews in a series of stunning victories that swept the Greeks from Jerusalem. The Maccabees secured a century of independence that lasted until the coming of the Romans in 63 B.C. Now, God's word is entirely accurate. The first threat, the first wave is, as, as Alexander comes, God's going to protect. He's going to camp and circle around Jerusalem, just as Zechariah 9, 8 predicts. But in the later age of the Greek Empire, they would come under threat, under a terrible tyrant, Antiochus Epiphanes, just as Daniel predicted. And against this ruler, God predicts here that he will raise them up to fight, which is exactly what he does. They didn't have an army. The, the, the military victories of Judas Maccabees, and you may know that name, Maccabees, it's because it's one of the um, books of the Apocrypha. Um, a book that has been considered helpful by the church since they've had it, only recently have the Catholics made it scripture. I, I don't believe the book of Maccabees is scripture. The Catholic church didn't believe it was scripture until the 16th century. But it is, as far as we can tell, very accurate, very helpful history. And you can read that historical book and, and get some of this intertestamental period, the 400 years between Malachi and Jesus when these revolts took place. And you can see in them at least some of the fulfillment of what Zechariah promises here. Again, God's word is so accurate to in one passage speak about being saved from the Greeks and fighting them. This is exactly what happened. Is first Alexander passed by and then as God raises up Judas Maccabees to mount a revolt. 
But yet, as, as much as this happened, again, in this book, we, we see that there's near fulfillments that set up far fulfillments. I know we're taking in a lot here, but because Jesus in, in Matthew, now listen to this, Matthew 24. Most people, before Jesus said this, had understood that the abomination that makes desolate, spoken about in, in, in Daniel 8, was fulfilled by Antiochus Epiphanes sacrificing a pig on an altar to Zeus in the Holy of Holies. It would seem to make sense. That seemed to fit. And then Jesus says in Matthew 24, 15, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, he goes on. Jesus clearly understands that whatever partial fulfillment has taken place with Antiochus Epiphanes, there is a greater fulfillment coming. And so what we understand is God's deliverance of Israel from the Greeks in 163 BC is, is a pledge, is a down payment, is a picture of the deliverance that's coming at the end of the ages. It also explains how this military language gets ramped up. Because now as we move into point two, Israel's God will be her defender, we get some big, bright, hyperbolic language speaking of God fighting for his people and these sort of super warriors they will become. Israel's God will be her defender, verses 14 to 15. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning, and the Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. What this is a picture of is God himself actually entering into battle. Um, theologians have a big word for it. It's called a theophany. It's just a picture of God entering battle. It's not unlike the picture in, say, Psalm 18, where God bends the heavens and comes down. What's interesting is in Psalm 18, it's just poetic language. But if you jump ahead a little further in Zechariah, jump to chapter 14. Will God enter into the battle himself personally? You bet he will. Zechariah 14. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, verse 1, when the spoil taken away from you will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped, and half the city shall go into exile, and the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies from Jerusalem on the east. This is, this is an amazingly accurate prediction of where Jesus will touch down, where the resurrected, risen Lord will touch down on planet Earth. You remember that when he ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives, the angels told the disciples, just as you've seen him leave, that's how he's going to return. Zechariah tells us his feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives. The Lord will go out to fight. And so here in poetic language, we get the picture of God doing that. The Lord will appear over them. His arrows shall go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet. He will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. And you can imagine the, the, the encouragement this is. I mean, you may be a small group of, of Jews, God is saying, but God himself will lead the charge. God himself will sound the bugle to march. God himself will be in the fray. And, and you know this, but... God plus anyone is a majority. Or just God, period, is a majority. And so if you're on his side, as Paul said, who can be against you? But not only that, but Israel will, will be, with the Lord's presence, <laughs> ramped up, as it were, into super soldiers. 
The Lord will, will himself be present, and his presence will be their protection. His presence will be their protection, which is the way it, it always is. God himself is our shield. God himself is our defense. The Lord of hosts will protect them. His presence will be their protection. And then look at this, this graphic description of how he will transform Israel into a fighting nation. They shall devour and tread down the sling stones. Literally, they will eat them. The picture is of an army. You're, you're taking your slings and you're throwing them, and the enemy soldiers, rather than getting hit and knocked down, are just sort of biting them off, like you know, sort of the cartoon where Popeye you know, spits out the bullets after he eats them or whatever. This is, this is that picture of a people so fierce, so strong, you throw stones at them, and thanks for the snack. They keep coming. They shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine. And again, you've, if you've seen any military movies, you get this picture of people so, so zealous, so passionate, so filled with, with zeal that they're roaring. I, I think of Braveheart. And it's a picture he's saying they'll roar as if they're drunk. It's not a picture of people being drunk. It's that type of, you know, charging, furious battle zeal is a stark contrast to the beleaguered 49,000 Jews living in Zechariah's day who were scared of Sanballat. But this is what happens when God dwells with his people, when God fights along them. They will utterly vanquish their foes. They shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, be full like a bull, drenched like the corners of the altar. And we read about the corners of the altar were just dripping blood. Here's a picture of a people who've just come through battle. God's in their midst leading the charge. They're roaring. They're just biting down the stones thrown at them. Their garments are filled with blood. It's a picture of a victorious army. They will utterly vanquish their foes. And we'll get to this fulfillment. Because like I said, that the events of 163 BC clearly seem to foreshadow, clearly seem to be a down payment of, of what's coming. But this type of language, this isn't going to get fulfilled until the final battle, when the Lord Jesus himself returns. So we've seen Israel's prisoners will be restored. Israel's God will be their defender. Finally, Israel's salvation will be glorious. Israel's salvation will be glorious. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great is beauty. Grain shall, be, shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. Israel's salvation will be glorious. Now, I suggested to you that we've shifted now from, from the days of, of Antiochus Epiphanes in the second century before Jesus, now to sometime far future. The, the, this clincher for that is the way verse 16 starts, on that day. Now, this is the first reference in this book, but if you just jump forward a bit, you'll see that there's a day that the book gets more and more focused with the more and more forward we get. Go to chapter 12. Just read the references to that day in Zechariah chapter 12. And it's the day of the Lord. That's the blank there. On that day equals the day of the Lord. Pick it up in 12.2. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. Verse 4. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse. Verse 6. 
on that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot. Verse 8, on that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Verse 9, on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that have come against Jerusalem. Verse 11, on that day, the morning in Jerusalem. You're getting the repetition? And again, in 13.2 and in 13.4 and in 14.4, on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. Verse 14.6, on that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, but there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but in the evening there will be light. And on that day, living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem. Verse 9, the Lord will be king over all the earth on that day. The Lord will be one in his name one. That day referring to the day of battle, the day of victory, the day of, of death and destruction for God's enemies, the day where the Lord Jesus returns to fight, the day though also where God's glory spreads over all the earth and rivers of living water flow out of Jerusalem. It's the day of destruction and the day of victory. It's the day the kingdom is established. It's the day of the Lord. And by using that language in chapter 9, which begin to dominate the latter chapters of the book, it's clear we are now looking to that day, on that day. So maybe your first read through Zechariah, you don't know what that means, but after you've read through Zechariah more than once, oh, I know what day that is. On that day, the Lord God will save them as the flock of his peoples. And here, introduces this, this shepherding picture which will also, this, this theme of, of Israel is God's sheep, God's flock, he is their shepherd, is going is to dominate the, the latter chapters. All of chapter 11 uses an extended metaphor of this shepherd and this flock. Chapter 13 as well, the shepherd struck. This is the first introduction of a theme that we're going to see repeatedly in the coming weeks. And it's a beautiful picture. And it makes it clear also that the salvation that's envisioned here is not just national. It's not just geopolitical. It's not just victory in an earthly battle. But it's a spiritual salvation because these shepherding pictures are always spiritual pictures. Whether it's, whether it's the psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, or whether it's one of my favorite passages that we do not have. Oh, we do. Ezekiel 34. We've got to go quickly to Ezekiel 34. This is one of my absolute favorite passages in the Bible, and we will sprint. Um, Ezekiel 34. Because here we really see God's heart for his people, and not just God's heart for Israel, but for all of his people. This is, this is, this is the antecedent of Jesus in John 10. I am the good shepherd. Israel will again be saved like God's flock, like his people. Jesus looking at them, with compassion, like sheep without a shepherd. And then Ezekiel 34, you got to be quick here, God rails against the flawed, hypocritical, cannibalistic shepherds, would-be shepherds over Israel. Look at verse 3. You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, and you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them, so they were scattered, because there is no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. God cares about his flock. Now look at the cure. Verse 11. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, notice the emphatic 
person. He's not, no one else. God himself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered as on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places in the country. And I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. And they shall... Lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture and shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be their shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. And I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy and I will feed them in justice. Jump down a little further to verse 23. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he will feed them. And he will feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. Which, of course, begs the question, I thought God himself is going to do this. Is it God himself who's going to shepherd the flock, or is it his servant David? And the answer, of course, is yes. Because David's greater son, the Lord Jesus, is God himself. This is God's heart for his people. This is God's heart for you. This is God's heart for me. And here, speaking to the nation of Israel, he will save them as the flock of his people. Zechariah is reminding them of God's great passionate zeal for his people. For anyone who would dare to abuse them and mistreat them, he will feed them, he will gather them, he will make them lie down. The Lord is our shepherd. Next, they're going to be glorious as the Lord's crowning jewel. First, in verse 16, he'll save them as a flock of his people. Next, for like the jewel of a crown, they shall shine on his land. Jewel on his crown. Again, ragtag bunch of people. Maybe they thought back to the days of Solomon. That's when they were resplendent. That's when they were a jewel in someone's crown. Not now. Not with this smaller temple. They don't even have a king. They're just a footnote in world history. And God says, no, no. You'll be like the jewel in my crown. You shall shine forth in the land. This, this borrows the language of Isaiah 62. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her. And as a young man marries a young woman, no, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and you shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. And what God's saying is in the kingdom that the Messiah sets up, Israel will be his crowning jewel. It will shine forth once again in prominence, once again in stature before all the nations. They'll be his flock. They'll be his crowning jewel in the Messiah's kingdom. Then that, of course, leads to extolling and praising God. To the praise of his great goodness and beauty. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Zechariah understands that whatever beauty Israel is in the future going to have, it's only because of the beauty of God. If we're lovely in any way, shape, or form, it's only because we are loved. His love makes us lovely. It's his beauty shining, reflecting off of us that is the only thing that could be of any value or worth. 
this glorious future of Israel restored as the firstborn son. Israel, once again, is the sheep of his flock. Israel is the crowning jewel of his kingdom. Leads not to the praise of self, but the praise of the living God. It's not how great we are, but a sign of how great and good he is. And then finally in verse 17, the flourishing prosperity of the messianic kingdom. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. And we don't have time to look at all the passages, but the pictures of prosperity and economic wealth in the kingdom is, is, is seen here. Jeremiah 31 talks about this. They shall come and sing aloud in the house of Zion. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, the oil, over the young flock of the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. What Zechariah is laying out is there's going to come a day, on that day. And as we keep reading Zechariah, we're going to learn more and more about that day. Here's, here's why they can refer to them as prisoners of hope. On that day, Israel's land will overflow. We, we already saw about the old and the children in the streets. Here, we're not looking at the old or the young. We're looking at the young men and the young women um, in, in times and seasons of, of rejoicing and love. The grain making the young men flourish, the new wine, the young men. This, we've seen now in Zechariah from the old to the young to the, to the young men and women. This is going to be a time of blessing, a time of prosperity. The kingdom of the Messiah will come. God's word to a beleaguered people is take heart. You may be prisoners. Be prisoners of hope. Return. Return to me. Return home. And God is already through the deliverance of Antiochus Epiphanes, proven, given a pledge of the promise of their ultimate safety when the battle of Armageddon comes, their ultimate deliverance. And we should take hope from this as well, that God keeps his word. And God has a heart for us, like a shepherd for a flock, that God will come again for us. Our future, our future in the kingdom will be wonderful as well, different than Israel's, but still glorious. God is our defender, and Paul says, if God is our defender, who can be against us? Let's, let's close in prayer. Lord God, we rejoice that you are on our side, or more accurately, that we would be allowed to be on your side. We rejoice that you fight for us. We rejoice that you, you have made us your sons and daughters. We rejoice that we have a Messiah, a Savior, who will return. And we'll set up a kingdom of righteousness on earth. And so, Lord, we simultaneously pray, come quickly, Maranatha. And Lord, in the meantime, help us to be a people of hope, a people of joy, a people of obedience, perseverance in faith. Help us to believe. Lord, as we look at the world around us, it's so hard to see the coming peace and righteousness that you will bring at your return. So, Lord God, we just... Praise and exalt you for your great goodness and your great beauty. And we just rejoice to be called your people, your sons and daughters. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.